question I should have asked you but didn't. Yeah, maybe something about like, uh, if you weren't investing in crypto, what would you be investing in? What would you be investing in? I would definitely be investing in AI right now. <laughs>
it gets reinforced anytime you go through a market cycle like the one we saw over the last you know year year and a half on last point uh, warren buffett actually talks about that like circle of competence like if if you know something it resonates with you it makes sense if if you're not getting it it yeah you should avoid that so that totally makes sense um so so what about some of the positive aspects of 2022 like in terms of your portfolio some of the wins that you want to share some of the events that i want to share um well i'd say you know in 2022 there were some i mean one of the things for which i guess is positive but maybe slightly on the in in the negative sense is that we avoided most of the big blowups of the year so you know we never invested in luna never invested in ftx never invested in blockfi never invested in celsius or in genesis or in you know these most of most of the big unforced errors of the year um we steered clear of and we always had a you know a hint of caution around these companies and we saw you know we had many opportunities to invest in in those companies and and we avoided them so that i think was a bright spot that you know our approach to diligence and our approach to thinking about these these um uh different mistakes that we thought different companies were making or different token economic models turned out to have been vindicated so that's always good um what else went well i i think some of our theses uh turned out to be pretty solid which is that you know for one um you know we'd made bets on a lot of um we we made bets on layer ones being uh very important areas of technological innovation and layer ones are some of the assets that did the best you know maintain their positions as being some of the top assets in crypto um the you know we we made a lot of bets also we made a big bet into matter labs which is the company behind zk sync uh which is now zk sync era uh that i think seeing how the race around zk evms has heated up that's been also a vindication of the fact that this idea that doing the evm in zero knowledge is one of the most important technologies to be building today um that seems to be resonating that seems to, a lot of people seem to be converging on that same idea um so you know the the fund you know investments that you make in in 2022 it, it hasn't been that long and generally speaking it takes more time for your investment thesis to play out so you know some of our big bets were things like uh you know we invested into aptos uh we invested into uh axelar the interoperability protocol we invested into bitget which is you know today one of the largest derivatives exchanges in the world um so you know these kinds of investments although you can look at the prices in the interim or you can look at the volumes in the interim you know they're long term bets and so it takes longer than a, a you know a year or 6 months to be able to vindicate where you're right in making this investment um and that's just the nature of venture so the best thing you can look for in a market like this is how many things died how many things just you know quickly turned to losses and um so far luckily for us the answer has been fairly uh fairly small in last like last one year we also saw defi kind of have a triumph over cfi um and i'm i've also recently seen that you guys are also active on the defi front uh so we'll also love to know your investment thesis around defi and in specific i want to learn about the categories or themes that you are targeting yeah defi right now you know honestly defi is a little sleepy right now like there haven't been a whole lot of new breakout products that you've seen grow in market share um if anything you know the 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 primary things that seem to be doing well are 
you know, there's obviously Uniswap is, you know, trading volume has increased uh, just given the volatility of, of the recent months, which is just a function of volatility. It's not even a function of, hey, more people want to trade. It doesn't actually look like users are increasing, but rather that simply volumes are increasing, which is great. It's, it's good to see that. Um, you know, the, the, the lending and stable coins in DeFi have mostly been flat. There hasn't been a whole lot of growth. Um, and a lot of other stuff, especially that was mostly doing yield farming and they didn't have a lot of organic traction, a lot of those things have really collapsed. And a lot of the function of why this is happening is in large part because of interest rates. When interest rates increase a lot, that basically means that the risk-free rate is much higher than it used to be. And when the risk-free rate is much higher than it used to be, then that means that you should not be taking on a lot of risk without getting a lot of reward. The amount of reward that you need for a given amount of risk increases when the amount of reward you can get for zero risk increases 20x. That's basically what happened with rates over the last uh, two years. So uh, it's no surprise then that a lot of DeFi is really struggling. A lot of DeFi is no longer gathering up as much TVL as it used to. Um, and that, you know, when you look at rates in DeFi, so for example, USDC, you know, you can get like what, 1.5% on compound, something like that. When the risk-free rate for holding, you know, U.S. dollar uh, short-term treasuries is between four and five percent, which used to be a fantastic, incredible yield, now that's literally the safest yield in the world. So that um, what that tells you is that I think DeFi is going to be sensitive to interest rates, and as interest rates trend back down, as markets are projecting that they will over the next year or two, um, that's probably going to cause a resurgence in DeFi demand. Uh, so I think DeFi is deeply tied to interest rates. Uh, now, the areas, I think, that are growth areas in DeFi, so one of them, one of the things that we have seen be fairly resilient is DOVs, um, you know, these uh, the, uh, decentralized option vaults. So these are basically structured products that are on-chain that allow people to generate yield on on some of their assets. Uh, liquid staking, we made a big bet on Lido. Liquid staking has done very well. It's been one of the standout for, I mean, you can call that DeFi, you can call it something else, but you know, for, for all intents and purposes, I think it is DeFi because it's a derivative. Um, and then uh, the the other area where that I think is fruitful is looking at real-world assets. Uh, that's a place where we've seen a lot of uh, growth and a lot of innovation is bringing more and more real-world assets on chain. It's an area we're looking closely at. In terms of real-world asset, that was also the area that in 2017-18, everybody was like bullish on real-world asset coming to blockchain. Um do you think why why is the timing right now? Like, even though there is a duration risk with the interest rate, why does the timing risk make sense now in terms of real world assets coming to blockchain? So I think the problem with real world assets is that people tend to have magical thinking about blockchain and you know real world assets or real world asset financing or whatever. So they sort of think that like, oh, the blockchain is a magic place where I can sell anything, and if I tokenize something, there's going to be liquidity for it because you know something magic blockchains liquidity mining, ICOs, blah, 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 fill in the blank. So, uh, which of course is nonsense, right? There's nothing magic about blockchains that makes liquidity for things that are normally illiquid. So somebody, you know, takes some real estate and they tokenize some apartment complex and they put it on chain and they're like, oh, great, now I'll get liquidity. And that's just not how it works, right? That, of course, nobody wants to provide liquidity for your random apartment complex in, uh, you know, <laughs> in like Germany or something. Uh the, the the more the, the more correct way I think to think about it is that you know, the blockchain is basically building a parallel financial system, 
And as a parallel financial system, uh, you know, there's, there's lower barriers to entry. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's online 24 seven. Um, you can programmatically provide liquidity to things. Uh, and it's global. You have access to these sort of, this sort of global digital financial market. That doesn't make things magically liquid when they wouldn't otherwise be. Um, that I think is the misapprehension that many people have had. But, you know, okay, if you have this global 24 seven magical, you know, digital online market, what will people want to trade in that global digital online market? Well, there's a good chance they'll want to trade treasuries, which are you know, one of the most liquid assets in the world. But we don't really have treasuries on chain today. It's kind of weird. We have one real world asset on chain today at scale. And that real world asset is US dollars. We have lots and lots and lots of real world tokenized US dollars. Right, they're sitting in bank accounts. Someone tokenizes them, put them on chain. There's legal agreement. There's banking charters. There's all that stuff, right? Um, but there's other things that we'd want to have on chain as well, that that presumably people would want to trade, and that just by their existence of being there would create arbitrages and would create sort of um, the 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 same dynamic that you get where you have this opportunity cost that's attractive, and so you can, you know, so for example. Uh, Right now, we have a very small amount of treasuries on chain, very small amount, right? It's basically, you know, there's Ondo Finance, there's a couple of other people who are putting treasuries on chain. And the order of magnitude is like, I don't know, 70 million maybe of treasuries that are on chain, uh, which is nothing. It's tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the over $100 billion of US dollar stable coins we have on chain. And it feels like that is, you know, before you get real estate or like, you know, trade finance or like really random stuff on chain, you should have treasuries. And then once you have treasuries, you should have bonds. And once you have bonds, you should have equities. And once you have equities, you should have all this other stuff that once it finds its way on chain and it fi- it's going to find this ready marketplace of global people who want to purchase it, who want to own it, who want to interact with it. And now look, a lot of these things are going to be KYC only, right? So it's not going to be that, you know, the, you know, randoms uh, on you know, smart contracts on, on Uniswap are going to be able to interact with these. But just the fact that they're there is going to change the way that on-chain financial markets work, right? Now, why do I say that? The reason why I say that, again, you know, if, if you are today putting USCC in a compound, why are you getting 1.7%? Like, that seems like a very low yield, right? Well, part of the reason why is that there is no, there is no real access to like a quote-unquote risk-free rate on-chain. You, you can't get a quote-unquote risk-free rate on chain, right? But if you are able to, for example, you know, have some people go on chain, put their USDC, borrow against it, and then go invest it into treasury yields, now all of a sudden you have somebody you can basically do an interest rate arbitrage. And if somebody can arb the interest rate that they're getting from Compound or from Aave, that's going to push the interest rate in line with the actual risk-free rate or cl- get it closer to the actual risk-free rate, subject to how much they can borrow and, you know, blah, 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 right? But right now, if there are no treasuries on chain, you can't do that. The risk-free rate isn't there on chain. So it doesn't matter that there's a risk-free rate somewhere if nobody can actually do the arbitrage. So all these things coming on chain, not only one, do they affect the interest rates and do they affect the overall dynamics of how other things get financed on chain and what other risks look like on chain, even if it's just to people who have the KYC, I mean, that's how markets work, right? Like, even if you're not buying treasuries, like in your personal account, treasuries affect the pricing of everything else in the market because there are some people who are buying the treasuries and who are using it to impact the pricing of everything else. The same thing will happen on chain once you have robust enough financial markets on chain. Um, but that, if, that, if, that influences everything. And it also means that a lot of people who are, 
you know, uh, especially non-US, who before they're thinking like, hey, I want to buy Ether or I want to buy, you know, Dogecoin or I want to buy whatever, there are a lot more people who want to buy dollars or who want to buy treasuries or who want to buy, you know, equities, uh, particularly US equities. And once those people will start getting access to those kinds of products, even if they have to KYC, um, then all of a sudden you have on-ramps that bring in normal people all around the world who want to start interacting with, with crypto, not because they want to do crazy crypto stuff, but because they want to have access to this global financial market. But that requires asset tokenization. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? You sort of need the demand side there first in order to bring the, or sorry, you need the supply side first to bring the demand side. Um, but I think we're getting there. We're starting to bootstrap. But the thing is, the order of operations has always been a little bit silly of bringing in these very weird esoteric assets that nobody wants to buy instead of bringing the most in-demand assets around the world first and then bringing more and more stuff on chain once you have the kind of groundswell of, of demand that's uh, coming in from the uh, from the on-chain side. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good description. I, I would also add like scalability is also one of the issues, like underlining issues. Currently, we have about 150 L1s and L2s. Uh, and if we combine the throughput of all those blockchains, um, we can't support a clear web two app, right? Like we can't support TikTok, we can't support Fortnite, or let's say uh, even a banking system, right? And and we are seeing multiple solutions emerge, like MPC, zk, uh, zk proof sharding, uh, parallel transaction execution. So, what's your sense um, by end of twenty thirty? Will blockchain in a blockchains uh, will be able to have 1 million transaction and low latency whilst being uh, sufficiently decentralized? And how does that path look in, in, in terms of your mental model? By 2030, I mean, it's always hard to answer questions that are that far in the future. Uh, so I put very wide arrow bars on this, but I would say by 2030, uh, uh, when you say 1 million transactions, do you mean 1 million transactions per day, per second, per second. across all blockchains, per, per second. single blockchain? Like single per second. blockchain. Okay. Single blockchain. Yeah, no way, no way, no way. Definitely not a million transactions per second. That That is way too large of a number. I mean, to be clear, you know, Google does less than a million transactions per second. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, I do think it's plausible that we get to, you know, uh, two order of magnitudes less than that. Which is obviously a big, <laughs> a very small. It's basically one percent of that. I think we could probably get to ten thousand transactions per second, which is just just to give you a sense of scale. You know, Visa is processing on a normal day about three thousand transactions per second, and like peak Visa throughput is about thirty thousand. Like Christmas Day, Visa is processing about thirty thousand transactions per second. So I think it's plausible that by in you know five six years, blockchains can get to about ten thousand a second. I would I would guess that that would be doable. Um, but I think that would only be doable for the very most uh, throughput optimized blockchains, which are probably not going to be EVM compatible and are probably not going to be, no, they're not going to look much like Ethereum in their nature, but there will be a, you know, uh, call it a Solana slash Aptos slash Near, you know, a blockchain that kind of is rebuilt from the ground up that is just built for high performance. Um, I, I would guess there would be a blockchain like that that is doing 10,000 plus transactions per second. So it will have to be a non-EVM. Um, I suspect it will be a non-EVM. Also, given the current uh, counter, counter-cyclical environment for block space and market mm. is kind of, like market still 
is pricing in fat protocol hypothesis, right? Like, as we see with the uh, valuation of L1s and L2s out there, like Arbitrum and Aptos recently. So in, in, in your opinion, is the risk reward still better for investing in blockchain versus dApps? Or do you think it's the other, 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 other way around? I don't think it's a matter of risk reward of why to invest into blockchains rather than dApps. Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, risk reward is ultimately a function of price. So as an investor, it depends on what price you're getting. Like for the right price, you can get a great outcome investing in a dApp, even if the dApp is worth $100 million at the end of the day, if you invest at a low enough price. And the same thing is true for an L1. An L1 could become a $5 billion L1, uh, but if you invest at $2 billion, then okay, your return is going to be pretty muted. So it, it's never a function of what the size of the outcome is. It's a function of what is the entrance price. Yeah, l- l- let me change the question. So given the valuations we have for L1s, like out there, yeah. like on average, mm. do you think from ROI perspective, from a valuation perspective, is it better to invest in dApps like, or still L1s make, make sense? Like when I see some of the FDV or, or market cap kind of feel um, – there's this discrepancy and kind of feel like market implicitly is pricing in fat protocol hypothesis. Um, yeah. So think like putting your thinking cap on, like do you mm, still prefer mm. like have a bias towards blockchain or, or a DAP? So I, I'd still object to the form of the question in that it still always depends on the entrance price, right? And so there are L1s that are valued relatively cheaply and there are L1s that are pretty expensive. There are DAPs that are pretty cheap. And there are DAPs that are pretty expensive. So I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, a categorical answer. Um, the other things I would say, uh, two other things that I would say. So first is that the FAT protocol thesis, we, we, we sort of, we complemented a bit much by calling it a thesis. It's really more of an observation, right? Uh, when, when Joel Manegro wrote this piece, I think it was 2018 that he wrote the FAT protocol thesis uh, or hypothesis, I think it was. Um, the reality was that this was purely an observation. It was not a theory. It was just looking and seeing like, huh, Ethereum is worth a lot of money, and nothing on top of Ethereum is worth very much money. Uh, why is that? That seems kind of strange. Um, and it's still true today, obviously, that the the um, the that L ones are worth quite a bit more than even the applications that are built on top of them. Um, but I, I would say this: it goes too far to call this a theory, so much as to call it. I prefer to call it the observation. And the question is: like, is this observation a function of the fact that blockchains are still new? And we're still waiting for the big killer applications that are going to become, you know, potentially even more valuable than the underlying blockchains. Or is this a long-term phenomenon? That's really the question. Um, so you say markets are pricing in this thesis, like, well, no, markets are why the thesis exists. Uh, because people just looked at the market and they were like, huh, here is, here is a description of how things currently work is that the L1s are way bigger than the applications. Um, now, I, you know, it, it's very easy to disprove the FAT protocol thesis um, in the sense that, you know, if you look at, for example, you know, Libra, Libra never launched, right? They kind of died on the vine or you became Novi and, you know, the things kind of evolved or the, the wallet became Novi. Um, but uh, if, imagine that Libra had launched and they launched on, you know, some blockchain, imagine they picked a blockchain, right? They picked, uh, uh, you know, Avalanche, okay? Let's say, let's say Libra launched on Avalanche. Well, if Libra launched on Avalanche, that would be a good example almost immediately of the FAT protocol thesis being invalidated because Libra would have been so big and so valuable, presumably, right? Maybe it wouldn't have, but let's, let's pretend it would have. It would have been so big and so valuable. And, you know, the fact that they're settling to Avalanche <coughs> maybe gives Avalanche a bump, but would it make Avalanche worth like, you know, $50 billion? 
No, probably not. Um, but would it have made Libra and what they were building worth fifty billion dollars? Yeah, yeah, probably plausibly. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it was a big bet made by Facebook, which is you know one of the most valuable companies in the world. So that would have been a pretty quick aha. There you go. You know, the Fed protocol thesis is invalid. Or if, let's say they launched on Tron. Would it have made Tron worth fifty billion dollars? Like, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, Tron is really just a settlement layer anyway, right? So if they were just settling stuff onto some other blockchain, I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that 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 would be necessarily the case. So, um, or for example, let's say that Axie Infinity decided that they were going to start settling onto some random blockchain you never heard of, not Ron, but something else. Um, it's like, well, as far as I know, actually, uh, uh, is Ron still trading? Actually, one second, I'm going to look this up. Uh, Ron, the uh, Axie Infinity chain. The Axie Infinity chain, yeah. So, it, as far it, as I know, it, 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 AXS is actually worth more than than Ronin, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. X Infinity is worth twice as much as Ronin. So there you go. There's a counterexample to the Fat Protocol thesis. So now, look, these are these are not dramatic uh, invalidations of the thesis. Like for the most part, the thesis is true, or the observation is true for most blockchains. Uh, but it's not necessarily true. The the last thing that I would say about the 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 Fat Protocol thesis is that the you know the, the, when you look at FDV. FTV is a little bit of a mirage because FTV is a complicated number, right? FTV is not the same thing as the uh, as just thinking about the market cap of a traditional company. And the reason why is it's better to think of the FTV as the total market cap, including the unissued shares. Normally, when you're looking at the fully diluted market cap of a company, you're looking at shares that have already been issued in one way or another. They've either been issued to the management team or they've been issued to investors or they've been issued to, to other people, even if they're not currently trading, right? If you look at the fully diluted supply of a token, that includes tokens that are not, that have not yet been spent on anything. And if the tokens have not yet been spent on anything, normally the way you think about it for a company is that, okay, if these are unissued shares, I mean, the shares haven't even been issued, they haven't been used for anything, then the, the company is only going to issue the shares if they are going to use them productively. And if they're going to use them productively, then that implies that it's going to increase the market cap, right? So if you're diluting by a hundred bucks, you're going to increase the market cap by at least a hundred bucks in order for it to be worth it to even issue the shares, right? And so normally when you look at the market cap of a company, you assume that unissued shares are basically, you can ignore them because even if the shares get issued, they're going to be issued in a way that's going to be valuable for all the shareholders. And so therefore, you might as well ignore them because they're they're a no-op, right? So let's imagine they had zero ROI when you issue shares. Then, okay, you have zero ROI, you issue new shares, you dilute everybody by 100 bucks, but you gain 100 bucks in market cap. That's a no-op, nothing happened, right? And if you do issue the shares, you'll be doing it because you think you'll actually get more than 100 bucks in value out of issuing the shares. So the presumption should be that if these new shares get issued, everyone is going to actually benefit even more so than uh, the amount that they lose in market cap by dilution. So when you're looking at FTV, FTV is just one number that, that ignores all of that. So for example, when there's tokens in a treasury, right, and those tokens in the treasury have not yet been spent, the presumption is that when those tokens get spent, they will get spent in, on something that's going to increase the value for all token holders by at least the amount that they get diluted by those tokens entering into issuance, which means that from the perspective of the token holders, those tokens can basically be ignored. Because if they do get spent, they will be, be spent in a way that's productive for everybody else. So your dilution from those tokens entering into the circulating supply should be paid for at least by an increase in market cap, 
Otherwise, they were not productively spent, right? And so if they're not going to be productively spent, token holders won't agree to spend them. That's very different from, okay, these are tokens that are locked up by investors, and eventually the investors will unlock, and then they'll sell their tokens, right? Those two kinds of tokens are very, very different. And FDV papers over that difference, right? It does not um, acknowledge the difference between those two, that is, which is what makes FDV quite different than the, 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 the fully diluted supply of a company market cap. So that's why I, I caution people when they look at FDV and they don't uh, appreciate the difference between those two numbers because they can be very, very big, right? A lot of these protocols have like treasuries that are like 30% of the token supply. A treasury that's 30% of the token supply, you should basically ignore. You should basically just delete that from the, from the market cap in order to get something that is analogous to the undiluted, uh, fully diluted market cap of a company. Uh, whereas looking at investor unlocks, looking at team unlocks, looking at, you know, contracts that have been paid out, investing tokens, those are basically the same thing as looking at the fully diluted market cap of a, of a company. So anyway, that's a somewhat subtle point, but it's one that I like to reiterate when people are looking at the FTV number, they're like, wow, that's such a big number. A lot of these you should be discounting by very large factors to get the apples to apples to what you would think of as the fully diluted supply for a company. Yeah, yeah that's a very good point. I'm, I'm just taking a second to digest it as well. Um, but one, one thing that is interesting is even here, the assumption is the treasury deploys it in a way that's capital efficient, like it produces positive ROI or, but what if like we, we see this in crypto, like sometimes let's say, since we are operating in a startup environment, they have to pivot. They didn't achieve their product market fit for whatever reason, the way the treasury deploys either in a centralized way or decentralized way, it's negative. So even in that sense, it still kind of makes sense uh, to, to see it as an FDV uh, or, or not, because then we are making an assumption that, let's say, the treasury, like when they deploy this, maybe it's not positive, maybe it's not negative, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? So if you actually believed that on average, the treasury was going to be negative ROI, like they were going to basically malinvest everything that you gave them, then you, the token holders, all the token holders, should vote to just delete the treasury. Because the token is like the whole network is going to be more valuable without the treasury. And token holders ultimately control the treasury, right? Collectively, they do. So if token holders are rational, then they should vote, take all the tokens out of the treasury and delete them. In principle, token holders can do that. And if there was a, a vote, they could decide to just dump all the tokens from the treasury into the burn address and boom, it's done. There's no more treasury. So if in fact that is true and you do have genuine DAO governance, then the treasury should not exist. So now, you know, this is obviously making some assumptions about token holders being rational and blah, blah, blah. And like, look, you can argue, oh, maybe they're not rational. And look, it's, it's hard to be rational because nobody knows what is going to happen. And like, these things are genuinely uncertain. And so it's understandable. Um, but, uh, and, and I don't want to be too loose in this idea that, okay, well, token holders are perfectly rational and blah, blah, blah. But on the whole, right, not for any particular project, but on the whole, if it, if people actually did believe that these DAO treasuries were basically worthless and they were just getting spent on nonsense, then token holders should have voted for them to go away. And by and large, they have not voted that. And they too tend to believe that these treasuries are important and they keep voting to ratify them and to, uh, well, maybe ratify is a bad word given everything going on with Arbitrum, but they do vote to bring them, um, to they, they do vote affirmatively. They're like, hey, our DAO does need a treasury. And we should have the ability to fund new projects, give grants, you know, do these kinds of things. And when these uh, uh, when these coffers are not there, token holders reliably vote to create them. Agreed on, on the latter point. We saw that with Nounsdao or ApeCoin, right? Like the, the 
treasury mm-hmm. itself enhance the, That's the right. market value yeah um now i want to move on and talk about two two of the most exciting areas for valuation expansion ai and crypto uh so i want mm-hmm. to talk about um any any specific projects or development you're seeing or you're excited about or thematically how 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 are you guys internally at dragonfly and even yourself personally thinking about the intersection of these two um, convergence. So I, I've been historically somewhat skeptical about the intersection of crypto and AI. Um, not that I don't think AI is real. I think it's extremely real. Um, I'm just a little bit skeptical that there is a lot of great investable opportunities that you're going to find at the intersection of crypto and AI. I think crypto is going to make some things in AI easier and it's going to enable some uh, cool and or scary applications. But I don't know that the way that you want to invest in that is by backing, you know, an AI startup that's doing some weird blockchain intersection or that somebody's doing, you know, uh, deploying something on chain. I think there's a lot of stuff that is kind of bullshit at the intersection of crypto and AI. Anytime you see a trend that's taking off, you get a lot of noise as an investor. Um, so, you know, when Metaverse was hot, there were 5,000 Metaverse pitches. Play to earn was hot. We got 5,000 play to earn pitches. Now AI is getting hot. And so we're getting 5,000 AI plus blockchain pitches. Um, you want to be, you want to be able to think from first principles about what really does make sense and what does the technology genuinely enable that was not enabled before. Um, and so there's some things I think don't really work today. So like privacy preserving machine learning, that today is just so incredibly inefficient that I don't think there's realistic commercial applications for it. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, decentralized inference, uh, where you put, you know, uh, uh, some kind of model on chain and you do inference on chain, even inference is quite expensive for these models. And so doing that on chain is just kind of nonsensical. Um, there's then there's decentralized training, which I think is even less promising because the fact that, you know, basically these, these models, uh, they're very expensive to train and they basically get trained by supercomputers and they need, they basically need to be physically co-located and these, you know, these A100s that, uh, you know, all these, models are getting trained on, uh, very people have these, like very people have access to them, much less own them. And, uh, the number of people who own them are, you know, probably, you know, less than 30, 40 labs in the world that have like big clusters that can, that can train these things. Uh, and so this is not a use case where blockchain is going to be very useful. Like, you know, people are not training these things on like their at home GPUs. They're training these things on very, very, uh, powerful supercomputers that live in the cloud, basically, that are graphics cards in name only uh, that NVIDIA tightly controls access to. So um, on the whole, I think right now, the idea that you're going to do decentralized training at home and you're going to be sending things over the internet uh, to coordinate over you know, different GPU cards that live on different people's computers, that, that's not a thing. That's not going to be a thing anytime soon. Um, so now there are places where the advances in AIs are going to intersect with crypto, and they're going to create great features for crypto products. So I think large language models obviously are going to be useful for things like data analysis and you know aggregating information about what's happening on this blockchain or that blockchain. I think for analysts, it's going to play a big role. And of course, there's a lot of data analytics that goes into crypto. Uh, you saw Dune Analytics launch a, a big product um, uh, with with basically making Dune queries much more easy to understand and easy to compose using large language models that have been fine-tuned on, on uh, SQL queries. Uh, there's there's going to be a lot of other stuff that's more feature-oriented from the intersection with large language models. Um, but I think we're going to see over the upcoming years, AIs start to interact directly with crypto and to use crypto as an affordance for them to interact with money. 
that's going to be big. It's going to be very interesting. And, I, and obviously, the other things will be development. Uh, we already see, you know, Copilot being one of the most widely used developer tools now in the world uh, in terms of lines of code written. It's massive, and uh, that's going to accelerate. And you know, you're going to see more and more things like smart con or uh, large language models assisting with auditing and assisting with security analysis. Um, that kind of stuff is going to get easier and easier. And just code composition, obviously, is going to get easier and easier with large language models. But again, are these things are going to be directly productized? Or are they just going to be used by uh, the the businesses that already exist, right? So all the auditors are going to start using large language models as like a first pass over some code, or they're going to use it to you know generate comments, or they're going to use it to generate test suites, and th this kind of thing is just going to get uh, it's going to get integrated into everything, as opposed to there's one big company that does LLMs for crypto. I, I think that's much less likely to be the case. Yeah, one of my hypotheses, I just want to test it with you, is mm -hmm. like with these LLM models and diffusion models. Our data becomes vital. Um, and let's say if you have an edge on data, or let's say you have bigger data set or, or, or differentiate data set, in essence, data becomes very valuable. And and since since I think about tokenomics day in and day out, do you make do you think there is a use case where token incentive or crypto economic incentives that kind of shares the network effects as well as gives user uh, equity of, of that network? to share that data and make some of these models powerful. So do you kind of see application on that front? Uh, or, or, or do you think there is some flaw in, in that assumption? I don't think there's a flaw per se. Um, I think it's more that uh, any individual piece of data is tiny, right? I mean, we talk all the time about how, how much incredible amount of data exhaust there is on the internet. Like people are just creating tons and tons of data every single day. And so in some sense, like d data or individual datum are not that valuable, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, these, these uh, large language models are trained on corpuses of, you know, what is it like? Uh, a lot of them are trained on trillions of tokens, like trillions of words of, of text. And trillions is a big number. And of course, most of the, a lot of these are, are very kind of open data sets, right? These are not particularly um, exclusive data sets that they're trading on. And um, so any individual word that somebody writes on Reddit or somebody writes on Quora or any particular post is so minusculely valuable that if you're like, hey, pay me a penny for training on my data, they're like, okay, well, I'll throw your data out of the data set and train on everybody else who doesn't care. And so the reality is like, yeah, data is valuable in aggregate. But individually, data is extremely not valuable. And removing any individual instance or any individual person's training data from your data set is just not really significantly going to impact the value of your data because we just write so much crap on the internet that large language models can train on. Now, if you're talking about something that's much more, um, something that you, you would fine-tune a model on, right? So not, not learning the sort of general language intelligence that these large language models are learning from just ingesting large amounts of data on the internet. Um, but if we're talking about a fine-tuning data set. So for example, if you look at, um, uh, what would be a good fine-tuning data set? If you look at something like, you know, uh, 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 Dune queries, okay? Uh, Dune queries are, are, are an example of a kind of fine-tuning data set. If you wanted to create a large language model that knew how to write Dune queries um, very well, then you might want to, you know, train it, fine-tune it on the corpus of all the Dune queries, uh, you know, ranked by popularity, right? So that the large language model would be like, huh, I should write a Dune, I should write, a query of 
you know, what's the most popular or like how much wash trading is there on this NFT platform? I want to write that like Hildabi from Dune and here's all of his queries, right? That is a data set that is more curated, that's more designed around a particular task, which is, you know, training, giving some, some, uh, some feedback to a large language model to train it to, you know, to talk more or write queries more like Hildabi. Uh, that kind of a model fine tuning, that data set would be more valuable. But it's more valuable only for this particular application, right? Uh, and so I think you want to be thinking about your data per application or per use case being valuable. Um, and now can blockchain be the way in which these people get compensated for their contributions to this data set? Maybe. It doesn't have to be per se, um, but it, it can be. Um, I do think the, the place where uh, we are seeing a lot of, uh, uh, I think it's more plausible immediately to see use cases for blockchain is just data labeling. So if you look at, you know, uh, big uh, companies like Scale.ai that do a lot of this data labeling as a service, um, this is kind of a natural place, sort of like Mechanical Turks type, type stuff. It's a place where you need lots and lots of that. You need lots and lots of training uh, and fine-tuning and, and reinforcement learning uh, and, and labeling for these large language models or for any machine learning tasks. Uh, that's a place where I think blockchain can be a good way to coordinate that kind of work. So you're seeing that actually on Near. there's a platform called, uh, uh, I think it's called Near Crowd that allows this kind of large-scale data labeling to happen through blockchains and basically mechanical Turks type, type interface. That kind of thing I think can work. Um, I think it's fairly easy and fairly low, um, uh, you know, sort of coordinating buyers and sellers who, you know, people who need data labeling services and people who can provide them. Um, and you don't really need to know who they are and you can just do this at scale with very low friction. Uh, whereas when you're trying to sell, you're trying to say like, hey, you're on my platform. You provided some data. Here, I'm gonna give you a share of the all the gains. You kind of need everyone to opt in, um, and that can just be hard. If like people are just like, "Oh, I'd like to post on my thing," or I like to just use Dune, but I don't want to like sign up with my wallet and like get uh, blah 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 and like sign some release or whatever. I just want to write queries on Dune. So that's why I think it, it can be more tricky to coordinate the whole "quote unquote" data ownership piece. Um, in some sense, like maybe yeah, someday it will make sense for people to own their own data. But today, I think the the overhead is actually quite challenging from a UX perspective. Understood. Something similar, but slightly different, is token incentivize physical and digital infrastructure, or, or some some of the VCs will call it proof of useful work or proof of physical work. So some examples would be Helium, HiveMapper, <coughs> or let's say decentralized Uber or Airbnb. What, what's your take on that? Like, do you think is it a ripe time for this theme to emerge, or if you have any reservation? What are some of the reasons behind that? I definitely have reservations with respect to the physical meets the digital stuff. Today, I mean, the reservations are mostly that it's not working. So it's more observational than it is intrinsic. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I don't really know. I don't have a strong theory of what it's going to take for these kind of networks to work. I do think they are sensible. I think they, they make the most sense. Uh, you know, I think that the V1 of all this stuff with like, uh, um, what was that? Uh, 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 foam. Um, if you remember, foam was one of the very early ones. It was like location based, proof of location. Um, and then, of course, there was uh, Helium in the early days, which was doing more, um, you know, uh, now they've moved more toward 5G. I think 5G actually makes the most sense. Uh, it's probably the most promising place to see can we get these, you know, sort of pop up 5G networks with uh, coordinating smaller systems that can provide connectivity in, in different places around the world. Um, I think it's promising. But it's by no means guaranteed that this is going to work or that it's even possible for this to work. Um, 
So I, I think, but, but, honestly, I think that's just a wait and see kind of thing. I don't think as an investor, you can sit around and theorize about how and why this thing will or will not work. I think it's really, it really is a function of will the entrepreneurs do the groundwork and outcompete their centralized counterparts or will they not? And I think if they don't do the work, if they don't execute, they'll lose. And if they do, I think they can win. Makes sense. Like one small experiment I've been doing is any any country I, I go to, I use Uber. I ask them, let's say if Uber increased your take rate to 85, 90%, like what would be your reaction? Then they, they seem very like happy. And then I, I, I kind of ask them further, let's say if Uber also gave you equity on top of that, they'd be like, this will mm. be even better than the insurance we get uh, from Uber. So for, from that standpoint, I kind of feel like there is something there. Um, but yeah, we haven't seen that take off and also like scalability of blockchain, Oracle issues, all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm very skeptical of the story. I'm very skeptical of the story. Like when I first came into crypto back in 2017, people talked a lot about decentralized Uber, decentralized Airbnb. And when I first got into crypto, I was totally on the hype train. I was like, yeah, we're going to decentralize every single web service and all the big tech companies. Like, why aren't they decentralized already? And, you know, I used to work at Airbnb. And I understand from my time there that the, the hard part about Airbnb, the hard part about Uber is actually not the software. You can see from the fact that there are Uber competitors in like every single country, everywhere in the world, a varying quality of software, but all of them have the basic software working. Right. Of like, there's cars, you track the cars, you tell the cars to go to the places and there's like some, you know, routing algorithm or whatever to, to where to drive. That kind of st- like, that's not that hard. People have figured that out. It's pretty commodified at this point. Um, that's not why Uber is so good. Uber is so good for a lot of other reasons, which is like one, their ground game of actually being able to recruit the drivers and the riders in every marketplace to like create, create the, the, you know, the beginning of the network effect. Uh, they have, uh, strong incentives. They have good reliability. They are attracting the right people at the right times. Um, their, their economic algorithms are quite good. Uh, and if the fact they have good support, they have, you know, multinational customers who are high value. And when they come into a new region, they're willing to pay money. And they, they also can go up market and offer, you know, different kinds of services beyond just uh, cars themselves. Like there's, there's a lot of reasons why Uber is successful and very few of them have to do with they have the software that coordinates the cars and, you know, predicts where the things are going to be. Uh, and so the reality is like these businesses like Airbnb, it's more of a support business than it is a software business. That's the thing that most people don't understand. And DAOs suck at support. They suck at customer support. They suck at customer quality. They suck at quality control. And those are the things that are hardest about building these gig economy uh, platforms. And so the other thing that I would say is that let's imagine that a DAO did end up, you know, uh, let's say, you know, you go to, you go to some place, uh, I don't know, you go to, you go to Egypt and you use Uber in Egypt. I don't even know if Uber's in Egypt, but let's say they are. You go to Uber in Egypt and you ask this Uber driver, like, Hey, what, what, what would happen if, uh, Uber gave you 90% take rate, you know, or gave you 90% of the earnings they had 10% take rate? You'd be like, that would be great. Okay. Well, let's say a DAO came in and a DAO, you know, started launching, you know, uh, Dauber in, in Egypt and they took, all the market share, they crushed Uber, uh, and then they and they started with a ten percent take rate, and they they crushed the market and they owned it. Why wouldn't the Dow also raise their take rate? Right? If they if they actually own the market, they actually have a monopoly. Dows are also economic agents. Dows also want to maximize their income. So the token holders of the Dow might vote like, "Hey, now that we own Egypt, and you know it's great, why don't we just increase our take rate to whatever Uber was taking? Because they had the market ceiling rate. You know, they have the best product, so they could." 
you know, they're also subject to market forces. There's no reason in principle why DAOs are going to charge less than centralized companies. The reasons why DAOs would charge less than centralized companies is because they are in a competitive market. Competition is ultimately what decides take rates, not the structure of your company. So Uber is going to charge as much as it can. It's going to maximize revenue, right? And stakeholders are going to find a way to maximize revenue for Uber. DAOs also try to maximize revenue. Now, they might have different competitive dynamics in which they're doing it, but at the end of the day, the token holders are going to vote to maximize their their return because they're economic agents, right? Like that's what they want. So uh, I don't think there's a reason in principle to think that DAOs are going to charge lower fees. Uh, the reason why they might charge lower fees is they have lower costs. But, yeah. you know, Just do, do they have like, significantly lower costs? Yeah. 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 Just to challenge that. So let's say if the DAO, like majority of the DAO members are, are cab driver themselves, like since they also get the equity or, or like token in this sense, um, do you reckon then that will make a difference? Because the one who is driving the car not only has a higher take rate, but also has majority of the token of this network eventually. So if the if the driver themselves owns, let's say all the drivers own all the tokens, right? I mean, let's just do this thought experiment because I think it's actually kind of weird. Um, let's imagine that all the drivers own all the tokens, okay? Um, and nobody else owns the tokens. Only drivers own the tokens. Then if you think about it, like, okay, well, some drivers make a little bit of money. Some drivers make a lot of money because they drive more or they're better drivers or whatever, right? And so uh, if everybody owns the token equally, let's say, let's say it's literally, you know, uh, like, you know, one token for each driver, okay? And, and that's how, that's how it works. So it's like a, it's like, it's kind of communistic in that way. Um, then the drivers who make the most money want the lowest take rate, right? Because they make a lot of money and they're basically averaging out their income with everybody else who's making less money. Um, so they actually want the least take rate for the protocol because they're making the most money by just themselves driving. And the drivers who make the least money, the worst drivers, they want the highest take rate for the protocol because they're actually not making that much money from driving. They're making most of their money from other people driving. So they actually want the highest take rate, right? Um, and so actually the drivers will fight with each other over the take rate. Uh, the drivers who drive the most want the lowest take rate and the drivers who drive the least want the least take rate. Now, if the drivers, if you can imagine some distribution of tokens such that the drivers who have the most have the most token and the drivers who drive the least have the least token. And so everyone becomes indifferent uh, to how much they're extracting or like, I, I imagine there's like some fixed point where how this would all work out, right? But in reality, in the real world, drivers would get the token and they would sell it. And they sell the token because they're like, oh, there's like extra income for me because I'm a driver and I like need to put food on my table. Like I don't, I don't just want to like invest in this company. Like maybe I do, but like most likely I just need cash. So they would sell the token and who would buy the token? The token would be bought by some speculator on the market who wants an investment return. And the person who wants the investment return is going to make the DAO charge the market clearing price for their product. And to, that maximizes revenue uh, or maximizes profit rather. So that's what I think you should expect that that's what the DAO will do is the DAO will maximize profit. Yeah, with this strain of thought and logic, yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, so, so Hasib, I'm also cognizant of your time. So I'm just going to do a rapid fire round just to like cool. uh, summarize everything. Um, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So in your view, which is more important for a project success, better tech or stronger network effects? Ooh, that's a great question. I would say stronger network effects. So Hasib, what was the last thing you Googled or, or searched on ChatGPT? Uh, let me look it up right now. Um, uh, what was the last thing that I looked up on ChatGPT? Um <laughs> Um, I typed in, okay, so there was a, there was a company that wrote a blog post in very bad English 
and I pasted their blog post and I asked ChatGPT uh, or I asked GPT-4, can you rewrite this blog post in better English to prove to this company that if they just ran all their blog posts to ChatGPT, it would sound like flawless English. And so then I did that and then I pasted the thing to them. That's right. That's the last query that I did into GPT-4. Yeah, all, all the questions in this podcast was prepared by ChatGPT. Okay, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so, Asip, can you share a non-Web3 spicy or contrarian take that others might not agree with you? Uh, Non-Web3. Um, I, I, I think probably the most obvious one. So I'm I'm an effective altruist, uh, still an effective altruist, even after the collapse of FTX and SAM and so on. And uh, I haven't changed my mind about pretty much anything since uh, the collapse of FTX. I've, I've changed my mind with, about some things with respect to effective altruism, the movement slash the organization, but I haven't changed my mind about anything with respect to effective altruism, the philosophy. As a co-host of the Chopping Block, what advice do you have for other pod- podcast hosts? Um, what advice do I have for other podcast hosts? I guess like my advice to other podcast hosts is to be yourself. Don't try to emulate other podcasts. Um, the There's a lot of podcasts out there, but the way you're going to differentiate is by being as much yourself as you can be. And I think a lot of people's instinct is like, oh, I should like try to see what other people are doing and like go more toward the center of the distribution. But actually you want to get as far away from the center of the distribution as possible if you want to attract an audience. That's that's actually good advice. What do you mean actually good advice? You, said, you sound surprised that I had good advice. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- that is one of the reasons why we also added the rapid fire round. We thought like nobody okay. in, in crypto is doing this. So we like, okay, let's, let's experiment. Um, Very true. I like it. Questions we should have asked, uh, question I should have asked you, but didn't. Yeah, maybe something about like, uh, if you weren't investing in crypto, what would you be investing in? What would you be investing in? I would definitely be investing in AI right now. <laughs> I'm spending so much of my time following what's going on in AI. Um, yeah, if uh, if crypto ever goes kaput or just becomes uninvestable, I think that's I'd probably be reborn as an AI investor. That's that's good to know. Thank you, uh, thank you very much for coming to the podcast. Um, I, we had a great discussion. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, again, thank you. My pleasure. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.